You are listening to audio from Ebenezer Baptist Church on the corner of Ebenezer Baptist and Pleasant Green Road in Hillsboro, North Carolina. If you would like to learn more about our church, please go to ebcconnect.org. Now, here's our pastor with this week's sermon. Put us in a position where there was no hope. It's a great place to be. And when we get up on Sunday morning, I don't know about you, but when I, when I looked up, when I got up and I looked out a little bit, it just seemed as if the sun were just a bit brighter today. Because there is hope wrapped up in what we call Easter. Because Easter does change everything. And we're going to talk this morning for a few minutes about several different parts of the Easter story and actually um, the whole week prior to Easter. And so I want you to hold on because we're going to move pretty quick this morning as we get into this. I also know that there are our children are in here this morning. So, so children, I want you to listen real closely because there's a couple pieces as we go through this that I I need your help with. Like, like, we'll we'll start with this. How many of you, and we're just, just children, how many of you have ever lost something? Raise your hand. All right. What, was, it, was it something that you really wanted to find, or did it matter? Did it matter? Did you really want to find it? Did it upset you when you couldn't find it? Yeah. And you know what? Parents go through the set, that kind of thing, and grandparents go through that. We had an incident in our house where somebody lost something and got really, 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 really upset about losing it. And it was something that, that we would say, oh, that's not that big a deal. It can be replaced. But still meant that somebody got upset and somebody was, was just messed up because of it. You know, we all lose something and we desire to find it. And there's even passages in Scripture where it says that something was lost and there was a, a genuine effort to find it. And when it was found, there was celebration on the back end of it. Luke 15 records that. We talk about a lost son that has come back or a lost coin that was found by a lady. There, there's those stories. And so when we talk about something being lost, it is something that we desire to find and it just kind of gnaws at us till we find it. And I don't know about you, when, when I go through something like that and I can't find it, I start to try and retrace all my steps. So I go, okay, when was the last time I saw it? And I'll, I'll try to think of that. Then what did I do when I had it? And then where, where did I put it down? And, and who may have taken it in between and moved it somewhere else? Because it's never my fault, you know, right? And so try to figure out how to find that which was lost. And it can be frustrating. It can bring anger. It can bring all kinds of different emotions into the picture. And, and this whole Holy Week and going into the morning before the resurrection is just kind of like that. It was a roller coaster ride for a bunch of guys and a society or a culture as they experienced Jesus' triumphal entry one week before his crucifixion and then going all the way through the week and the different things that happened leading up to a time where he was taken to a place and put on a cross and died. 
It was a roller coaster ride. It was up and down. There were all kinds of emotions that went with that. There was the jubilance of, of walking into that city and everybody, everybody going, this is great. And then at the end of the week, it's like somebody pulled a rug out from under everything that, that, that had happened over the last three years. Somebody pulled that rug out, and they were standing there trying to figure out, okay, which direction do we go next? And I'm guessing that these guys started retracing their steps and looking at the situation and going, where did we mess up? If Jesus ends up on a cross and dies, where did we mess up? Where did things go wrong in this scenario? Why isn't it as I thought it was going to go? Because leading up all the way up to that, it becomes a point when Jesus is crucified and put in a borrowed tomb that there is loss. Something is lost. At that point, it feels bad. And so that whole week before, what happens is you have this, this great entry and then some time of teaching and, and different things that happen, some, some um, discourses that Jesus talks with his disciples about. And he says, I'm going away and I will re I'll return. But when I go away, I'm going to send somebody else. And you need to understand the world doesn't love you as I love you. And you need to trust me. Go through all that. They get to a meal of remembrance, remembering the deliverance of, e of the Jewish people from Egypt. And that whole idea of a Passover meal. And they celebrate that together. And for up to that point, it's a fairly normal kind of evening. Jesus washes the disciples' feet. And so the meal takes a little turn. And so Jesus takes a, a basin and, and a towel and begins to wash the disciples' feet. And the most powerful man in the room is now bending down to wash those, even the one who would betray him. He washes their feet and gets the dirt off and says, if you want me, if you want to be a part of me, you have to let me do this. You have to let me serve. And it's an uncomfortable place when we have to say, God, serve me. But it was needed. And so Jesus bends down and washes the disciples' feet. And then he begins to break the bread as we did last week in this room and shared, a, shared that part of the meal. And he said, this bread broken for you is given. It's my body given for you. And then he takes the cup and they share that. And he said, this represents the blood that will be shed on your behalf. Do this in remembrance of me. Or as you come back to it, remember what I did for you. And so he shares that meal with them. And then before they leave the table, Jesus exposes the one who would betray him. And I think that's a really strange turn of events that evening because if there's one place you wouldn't want to be called a traitor, it's in a room full of followers. And I'm just wondering why the other guys didn't get up and just kind of pound him. But it didn't happen. The meal ended kind of quietly, and I'm guessing on kind of a different note than maybe a normal meal. In Mark chapter 14, which is where we're going to start, Mark chapter 14, starting at verse 26, is the end of this institution of the Lord's Supper that's recorded here. It says, when they had finished, 
And when they had sung a hymn, they went out to the Mount of Olives. And Jesus said to them, listen to these words. You will all fall away, for it is written, I will strike the shepherd and the sheep will be scattered. Now I wonder what those words sounded like at that point. Jesus had shared the meal, he had washed their feet, he had broken the bread, shared the, the, the fruit of the vine with his disciples and said, this is what's going to happen. And then you always have the one that will say, hey, I'm going to follow you with all that I am and I'm not going to give up, that'd be Peter. And then we get to this spot where Jesus says, you will all fall away for it is written, I will strike the shepherd and the sheep will be scattered. I wonder how bad that hurt. How hard it was to keep a straight face in front of Jesus when he says that, that every single one standing around here as they listen to it are not going to live up to the allegiance they've pledged before this. They will all fall away because the shepherd will be struck and the sheep will be scattered. Piercing words. That word fall away means that they would begin to lose trust. They would look at Jesus after this, after this evening and begin to lose sense that the direction they were heading is direction. And they wouldn't know what to do with it. Jesus was giving them warning about what was going to happen. And even in the midst of the warning and even in the midst of this kind of, of, of treatise, you have somebody that says, hey, it's not going to be me. How many of us have said that? Push come to shove. When, when somebody questions my faith, I'm going to stand there and I'm going to stand up for what I believe. And then in the midst of some challenge, we back away and say, it just wasn't the right time for me to witness. It just wasn't the right time to step into that. And we kind of back off. And then we wonder, why didn't I... Why didn't I step up? Why didn't I do what I said I was going to do? It says, as we go through this, it says, Peter said to him, even though all fall away, I will not. That's bold. That's, that's pretty bold. And Jesus said to him, truly I tell you this very night, before the rooster crows twice, you will deny me three times. But listen, look at this. And, and you got to go, really? Jesus, you don't know what you're talking about. I got this. But he said emphatically, if I must die with you, I will not deny you. And they all said the same. Every single one of them are going, I'm in this. I am all in. So they get to the next location. They get to the garden. Verse 32, it says, and they went to a place called Gethsemane which means olive press. It's that place of pressing. It says they get to Gethsemane, and he said to his disciples, sit here while I pray. And he took with him Peter and James and John and began to, get, to be greatly distressed and troubled. Now that greatly distressed and troubled means that something was messing with, with him so bad that it started to gnaw at his insides and the weight of it got him to the point where it was almost like he wanted to throw up. It was that kind of anxiety and troubling. It was, it was one of those things that distressed him deeply. And we understand that when Jesus began 
this, this scenario in the garden, that he was being pressed. That he was being pressed by several things. And I want us to catch this before we get too far into this, because Jesus was being pressed out of, uh, in what was going to happen. He was being pressed in, in his relationship with God. What was normal for Jesus was being challenged at this point. Jesus was in this place, grieved to the point of death, and in verse 36, it says, And he said, Abba, Father, all things are possible for you. Remove this cup from me, yet not what I will, but what you will. I think at the point he gets to the garden, he begins to feel the stress and the distress of knowing that the weight of all of our sin would be placed on him. Jesus was sinless. He hadn't had the weight of sin. He had the weight of temptation, but not the weight of sin. The sinless Savior was going to feel the weight of our sin and what it takes to redeem a people that are in desperate need of salvation. So at this point, he's greatly distressed, grieved to the point of death, and he starts to feel the weight of your sin and my sin. He starts to feel the weight of the wrath of God that will be placed on him because Scripture says that he became sin for us. And then he begins to feel the weight of the loss of relationship with the Father. When you start looking at John 17, you understand that he and the Father are one. They are joined together. And what's, what's joined together, when Jesus becomes sin for us, that is ripped apart. I don't know exactly how to explain it. All I know is that Jesus took on my sin and bore the wrath that I deserve. He bore the wrath that you deserved because of sin. So the first thing that we have to understand this morning is that Easter, because it changes everything, it changes who is responsible for the weight of sin. 2 Corinthians 5.21 says that he became sin for us. For our sake, he made him to, to be sin who knew no sin. Jesus begins to feel the pressing weight of the wrath of God because the penalty of sin is death, Romans 6.23. Wages of it, the wages of sin is death. It's something that's deserved. And he begins to feel the pressing weight of separation with the Father. It's the same term that's used in Matthew 6 where Jesus is teaching the disciples to pray and he says our father it's that Abba father idea that when we are in relationship we are part of God's family and when he says Abba father if this can pass from me I'm good with that if there's any way we can get out of this I'm good with that you can do all things but not my will but your will and as much as we say, Abba, Father, God, we are in relationship with you and we have that closeness, just think how much closer the relationship was between the Father and Jesus. Ripped apart because of the weight of sin. Jesus took all the weight of your sin and my sin. 
and willingly gave himself to be a sacrifice for us. The evening progressed from that place of pressing Gethsemane onto several trials and beatings and mockings as Jesus is led to a place of the skull. He was unrecognizable at that point. And he hung on a cross between two thieves. Not because man put him there. Sin put him there. Your sin and my sin put Jesus on the cross and held him in that spot. And Jesus, with all his power as God, the sinless lamb, took on what we deserved. And he hung there on our behalf. An intentional plan of the Father to restore relationship with man. Go through that and you understand that it was a crazy week, a roller coaster week, a wild week in the life of disciples. But then we can flip a page in our scriptures and look at something that happens because between the time of the crucifixion and the time of Easter Sunday morning, there's this feeling of lostness and hopelessness, a desperation. What do we do now? Then we get to chapter 16. Chapter 16 says, in verse 1, it says, When the Sabbath was passed, Mary Magdalene, Mary the mother of James and Salome, brought, bought spices so that they might go and anoint him. So they get prepared the night before. And they're ready to go anoint him. They're ready to go to this tomb. And, and you know, when you're expecting something and it's not the it's not what you expect. It kind of throws you off, doesn't it? You've been in that spot. You go to a restaurant and say, I order sweet tea and I get Coke, or I order Coke and I get sweet tea. Or worse yet, you get unsweet tea. I don't think there's anything biblical about unsweet tea. I'm not even sure why Chick-fil-A sells it. But when you don't get what you expect, kind of throws off the rhythm, kind of messes you up. And these ladies prepared to go to see a body that was dead, laid there all wrapped up in a tomb. So they get all their stuff together, they gather it, they put it in their backpacks, get ready to go. I don't know what if they have backpacks. They carried all the stuff to the tomb. And in verse 2 it says, And very early on the first day of the week, when the sun had risen, they went to the tomb. So they go. And they were saying to one another, here's the expectation, Who will roll away the stone for us from the entrance of the tomb? Who's going to do it? So they have really no plan. They didn't bring along the big guys to move a stone. They just said, hey, we're going. And I really don't know what they had in mind when they left the house with all the stuff. They just went. Say, I wonder who's going to roll it away. I don't know. You know, I don't know. Well, I guess we can find somebody. And this is what happens. And looking up, they saw that the stone had been rolled back and it was very large. So it didn't happen by itself. 
It did not just slide out of the way. It was moved. And entering the tomb, they saw a young man sitting on the right side, dressed in a white robe, and they were alarmed. They were terrified. And he said to them, do not be alarmed. Catch this. This is the most incredible statement in all of Scripture. Because on it hangs the balance of everything that we believe and everything that we hold to. You seek Jesus of Nazareth, who was crucified. No doubt you saw him. He was wrapped. He was put in the tomb. He was crucified. He's dead. He has risen. He is not here. Just stop. Let that sink in for a minute. Stones rolled away. The one you're looking for, you thought was lost, couldn't find them, messed up your weekend. He's risen. He is not here. And then, then this, this one who's standing there is kind of saying, hey, calm down, calm down. Don't freak out. He's not here. He's risen. And just in case you're wondering, this is where he was, right? Check it out. Go look at it. He says, he's risen, he's not here. See the place where they laid him. Go ahead and check it out. See if he's there. Touch the garments that were wrapped around him. Go ahead, see. Is there any life there? Is there any death there? He's not there. He's risen. He's not in that tomb anymore. And then he says, but go Tell his disciples and Peter that he is going before you into Galilee. There you will see him just as he told you. And they went out and fled from the tomb, for trembling and astonishment had seized them, and they said nothing to anyone, for they were afraid. Just kind of dumbfounded. I, I, I guess I would be too. We look at it and say, well, wouldn't you want to tell everybody? No, I'm in shock. What they expected to find was not there. The person they expected to find and anoint was not there. See, Easter changes not just who holds the weight of our sin, but Easter changes why we can have hope. 1 Corinthians 15, 56 and 57 says that death and sin are defeated. They're defeated by Christ. He is risen. You say, what about, what about all that idea of, of me dying and where, where do I go and all that kind of stuff? Death has been defeated. The sin no longer reigns because Jesus has done what he said he would do. And when we trust Jesus with our life, we are trusting the one with the power to defeat what could have taken us down. And that option is open to all of us. Jesus reminded Mary and Martha in John chapter 11. He said, I am the resurrection and the life. Who believes in me will live even if he dies. And everyone who believes in me will never die. What a statement. And we understand that that statement was said in reference to in, in the situation with Lazarus. But when you start looking and going, okay, Jesus, you are the resurrection and the life. It's, it's come in your stead. It's for you and and because it's you, it gets transferred to us. And so we look forward to that. Easter changes why we can have hope because we have a risen Savior that is worthy of worship. Easter changes everything 
about where we will spend eternity. As well, John 14, 1-3 says, Let not your hearts be troubled. This is one of those sections of Scripture that Jesus is teaching to His disciples prior to His death. He says, Let not your hearts be troubled. Believe in God. Believe also in Me. In My Father's house are many rooms. If it were not so, would I have told, would I have told you that I go and prepare a place for you? And if I go and prepare a place for you, I will come again and take you to myself, that where I am, there you may be also. Jesus basically said, I'm going to get stuff ready, and you're coming. The resurrection gives us hope for where we will spend eternity. The resurrection gives us hope because of what Jesus promised. Now, children, here you go. Got a question for you. And you're not allowed to elbow your parents on this one. Have you ever been promised anything? Been promised something? If you've been promised something by your parents, raise your hand real quick. Been promised something? I was promised things. I was promised like, if you'll be quiet for the next 15 minutes, we'll go get ice cream. Stuff like that. Sometimes, and I know me as a parent, there's times where I've promised things as a parent and I've not fulfilled my promise. Parents sometimes have a hard time with fulfilling promises. It's not all the time and it's not because we don't want to. So sometimes we will disappoint you. However, Jesus is not like that. When Jesus promises something, he's going to make it happen. And Jesus promised us that we could spend eternity with him and where he was going, he would prepare a place for us that where he is, we could be also. And so we have great hope for where we will spend eternity because of Easter. A dead prophet cannot do what a living Savior can. Romans 6.23, back to that. Remember the first part of that says, for the wages of sin is death. The second part of that verse says, but the free gift of God is eternal life in Jesus Christ our Lord. Our eternal destiny is based on the promise of God. It's based on the promise of God and our trust in Him, believing by faith that what God promised He would, he would make come happen or come through through Jesus Christ. And so it moves our confidence not in what we can do, but what Jesus did for us. The fourth thing this morning, Easter changes everything. Easter changes what we do as individuals and as a church. Why we exist. Because it, without Easter, we really have no foundation on which to do anything that we do. Because we have a risen Savior, we seek to follow Him with passion. Paul wrote in 1 Corinthians 11, he said, Be imitators of me, just as I also am of Christ. Although imperfect, we want to love and care and serve and do the things that Jesus did. We want to follow him as disciples. Because he is risen, the church also seeks to replicate his love and care for those around us. There's several ways that happens. You know, we want to grow. And so our, our mission statement says that we exist to develop 
authentic followers of Jesus Christ who impact the world. The idea is that we provide places where people can grow in their relationship to God. If Easter doesn't happen, there's no reason to grow in our relationship to God. There's no reason to get together in small groups. But because of Easter, we want to do what God has asked us to do. And so there's opportunities like the discipleship classes that are coming up or exploring church membership or singing in the choir. All those have become places where we can grow in our relationship to Him. There are mission trips that we take because we have that mentality, as was said here, by the one sitting in the empty tomb instructing the ladies to go and tell. Go and tell the disciples and Peter. So we want to be in that place where we go and tell. And it may mean in West Virginia, because that's coming up. It may mean in Peru. It may mean in Canada. It may mean in Guatemala. It could be across the street. It could be a park here in town. It could be anywhere. But we go with the idea that we have great news to tell because Jesus is alive. There's a message in this passage for all of us. And the greatest news that could take place in this passage is that Jesus is risen. He's not here, he is risen. We get that. And as much as we say, I want to follow Jesus and I want to be part of what he's doing, there's a part in here that, that just kind of, kind of jumped off the page. It's, it's that phrase, but go tell his disciples and Peter. Why? Why add Peter to the list? Is he not a disciple? Sure he is. But he's also the one with the biggest mouth. He's also the one that said, hey, I'm all in. It's not going to be me. I'm not denying. And then everybody, else, everybody else kind of fell in line. Peter said, it's not going to be me. And yet, he denies Christ. Truth be told, there's more Peter in me than there is disciple. I know me better than you know me. And my guess is if we look on the inside of us, we would also admit that there are more times than not that we say, this is what I will do for the glory of God, and we fail. This is what I want to happen in my life, and I fail. How I'm going to make this commitment on Easter that I'm not going to miss another Sunday the rest of the year and three weeks down the road. Fail. We all have those moments where we say, God, I want to do what's right and I want to follow your word. And we mess up. I think this phrase in here speaks volumes about what Jesus wanted Peter to hear. Peter, although you said you had an undying allegiance to me, I'm risen. You need to hear that. And I want to pull you into myself and restore you. We read that later on that Jesus and Peter have a discussion along the seashore that draws him back in. 
And in the midst of dealing with failure and tragedy and maybe the shame and guilt of denying Christ, he becomes one of the most outspoken proponents of the gospel of Christ of any of the disciples. He's the one that does go to a cross. He's the one that does give his life. Jesus restored him. And you and I find ourselves in situations like that. where We say, God, I've failed you and I need to be restored. There's some in here this morning. Because Easter presents a unique opportunity. There's some in here that have never given their life to Christ. And so, the peace that the disciples had at resurrection, when they understood Jesus was risen, the joy that went with that, the security that came with knowing that their Savior lived and wasn't laying in a tomb, all that may be foreign to you because you've never surrendered your life to Christ and never received the forgiveness that God offers. And this morning, we would, we would love for you to understand that today you can give your life to Christ and you can receive God's forgiveness. So for some of you, that may be what you need to do. And I would encourage you when we stand and we start singing that you would come down and Scott will be here and Curry will be down this way and I'll be down here. And there are others that can come and rally beside you. And we'd love to answer those questions for you on how you can begin a relationship with Christ. Others of us in this room, we're more like in the Peter boat. And we need to come and say, God, would you restore me? Would you help me to understand what 1 John 1, 9 means if we confess our sin that he is faithful and just to forgive us our sin and cleanse us from all unrighteousness? We may need to come to the front and just say, God, I'm again committing my life to you recommitting my life to you. See, today, Scripture says in Hebrews um, chapters 3 and 4, and says it several times, today, if you hear his voice, do not harden your hearts. Today is the day of salvation. Today is the day of restora- restoration. Today is the day where we celebrate an empty tomb, and with it comes all the things that, that are signified by Jesus not being in that spot, but being risen and alive. Easter changes everything. It changes who is responsible for your sin. It changes why you can have hope. It changes where you can spend eternity. And it changes what you will do in this life. And so I want us to pray. And then I want to ask you if you would respond to the glorious truth of the empty tomb and a resurrected Savior. Let's pray together. Father, it is so good to understand that Jesus is alive. Where the disciples experienced a desperate time, maybe a depressed time, anxiety and fear because they had lost something. Father, you promised that you would meet them in Galilee and you fulfilled that promise. And Father, where you say you will take on the weight of our sin and you will give us eternal life, Father, that is true as well, that you would do that 
if we would just come to you and say, God, help me to receive your forgiveness and turn over my life to you. Father, some, some of us need to be restored like a Peter. And so, God, during this time of invitation and commitment, God, I pray that we will hear the voice of God and that we will not harden our hearts, but be obedient. God, thank you for who you are and for how much you love us. And we pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Thank you for listening to this audio from Ebenezer Baptist Church. We welcome you to join us next Sunday at 1030 for our weekly worship service. If you have found this resource helpful, please do share it with others and check out our other ministries at ebcconnect.org.